What do you see in your mind's eye when you think of landscape architecture? Is it serene beauty that takes decades to mature? Or is it what's done to dress up a site if there's any money left after the building is constructed? According to today's guests, the latter approach is far too common in North America. Plants and flowers and a few trees, landscape architecture as an afterthought. Today's guests are deep thinkers who are working to bring a more expansive European perspective. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. Today's episode is titled Landscape. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of this podcast, coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Our featured guest today is world-renowned landscape architect Michel Devine of the firm called Michel Devine Paysagiste of Paris. Over his many years of practice, he has designed projects in 28 countries. Our other guests are two University of Manitoba professors of landscape architecture, both born and trained in Germany. They are Dietmar Straub and Anna Thurmeyer. Dietmar is a longtime admirer of Devine, and it was Dietmar and Anna's idea to invite Devine to offer his lecture to us on Zoom from Paris. Devine began his lecture by offering this brief introduction. So this lecture is done following a new book we just produced this year. The title is Transforming Landscapes. I've been working more than 30 years on large territories and long-term transformation processes. And this book is about a kind of evaluation of these long-term, large-scale uh, processes. So it's not a nice book about, you know, um, nice gardens. It's more about understanding what were the purposes, what were the concepts, and what did work or not. The book to which Devine refers is called Transforming Landscapes, and it was published in the spring of 2020. It was the basis of his presentation. I spoke to Dietmar Straub and Anna Thurmeyer to learn more about what they see as the unique aspects of Michel Devine's approach. Dietmar Straub begins. One very important aspect, working with and for people and working with living materials, plants. And I think that was very obvious, you know, on all scales, on an urban scale, on small scales, calling gardens, plants are so important. And it's not just about plants. When you look on this project in Marseille, you know, the harbor, it's also about stones and all this craftsman knowledge, but there are strong contrasts. But working with living materials and all living beings on the land, that seems to be so important for him. Where sometimes I think, you know, in the, let's say, more trendy or glossy current landscape architecture projects, they are somehow designed for first shot, you know, photograph in order or with the hope to get somewhere published or to receive an award. And plants are just used to decorate the hardscapes. And I think that's a huge or most important difference regarding our disciplines, landscape architecture, architecture, we need patience. Now, after the work is completed, let's say the construction company leaves the site, you know, the work actually, actually starts. Whereas in architecture, if it's not well done, 
know, the work won't achieve a patina, it will start to decay and rot. So time and growth and the constant kind of maintenance and cultivation of those places, it's very important. That's what, what, what it does. You heard Dietmar Straub refer to a striking project that Michel Devine designed in Marseille on the Mediterranean coast of France. In his lecture, Devine described what he was trying to accomplish there. Now we are in Marseille, it's a city built by the Greek 2,000 years ago, and we won a competition. We started in 2010, so this is our 10th year on it. There was several purposes on this competition. It was about transforming 400 hectares of land, the very city center contained into a kind of former wall, the Black Lane, that is the boulevard today. So this is the very center of Marseille, the second city in France. And one of the purpose was the transformation of the old harbor built by the Greek that was used, you know, as everywhere in the world by cars, car parks, private zones. And we had to build it as a public domain. I was interested not only on this white surface, that according to us, because they belong to public domain, could be transformed easily into a large park system. So what I really love is, of course, the K, the park system, and then all the street network. Interestingly, uh, Norman Foster's team was on my team, but he agreed at this time that I was the leader of the team, which is not so usual for such an important um, architect and an important company. So this meant that landscape architecture, again, was a driving issue. What we see is the result. And it's very simple, you know, it's stone and no design, nothing. Except before we have 75% of the surface occupied by car, now we have only 25% for cars. And I wanted to find again this kind of like Greek minimal artscape. And it has no trees because it's a zone that could be flood. And it has no trees because trees will be behind, will be at the rear of these buildings. We think this was a kind of um, stupid thing to bring trees on this. Trees are everywhere behind, but, and there's a park system. And Foster's uh, built this kind of island where all people using boats could still uh, work on their boats. So it's an arbor where you see people working on boats having activities, and that's funny. It's not only, you know, a kind of touristic uh, zone. It, it corresponds to a place where people are, yes, interesting working. The roads will be transformed. There will be only public transportation in a few years, and cars will vanish. But I really like this capacity on harbor to work with um, nothing, just space. And it's such a vibrant city that it immediately worked. I mean, people immediately went on the site, and these people were not scared by emptiness. The transposition and transformation of landscapes are concepts at the center of Devine's thinking. To illustrate that, he described a project he did in Bordeaux on the Atlantic coast of southwestern France as an example of those concepts in action. This was an industrial area. It's six kilometers long, and because the abandon of the industrial area is going in phases. We think this could be a kind of incremental landscape. It's a kind of mosaic of forest that will follow availabilities of these parcels. 
So this was the existing condition, so industrial land, and um, we decided not to build it, as I said, we convinced the mayor, the mayor bought the land, the city bought the land, and so it is still in transformation, 14 years after, to build a park, and it looks like a countryside. And by the way, upstream and downstream along this river, this is what the landscape looks like. It's done by poplars, willows, meadows, and we brought this countryside language in the very center of the city. And it's a little strange, it doesn't look like a real park, you know, it's a, it's a kind of countryside in the city. It has a real rusticity, and it's not a kind of uh, minimalism, it's not um, a kind of aesthetic, it's uh, really, I hope, rigorously a transposition of what one can see on the countryside around the city. And by chance, it was well understood. For people, it's a kind of um, familiar uh, landscape. It immediately looks like something known, and it was incredibly well received and people are using it, despite the very young uh, aspect of it. It's something I love to say, you know, a countryside is never ugly, or it could be, but usually countryside, agricultural landscape is nice. A young park in cities sometimes not so interesting. So I really like to play with these tools. In listening to Devine, I was struck by a simple, yet absolutely essential feature of landscape architecture, to which I'd not really given much thought. So I asked Thurmayer and Straub about it. Time is such a huge factor, not just in his work, but in the evolution of a landscape. How do you feel about that, Anna? I would like to underline this. It was very impressive to see his um, display of work. And then it was he started working on it decades ago. So he's, he's really... Um, now in the position to look back to um, projects started 20 years ago uh, and how they are looking today. So this was impressive to see how many years he was active um, and taking care of them. Another parallelity, I would say, he, he was saying in his um, speech, the modest look. You know, he's interested in the very modest look of yeah. his project. And um, also he's thinking, um, using the projects as prototypes, prototypes for uh, a wider application. And so that is what we, with our humble project thinking, also hope to initiate so that we can um, maybe serve the profession also in, have a look, this is screaming for help, this is where, where the profession might, might invest more. Let's say a schoolyard or something like that. A small project uh, could, can have a big Im impact. And so this kind of thinking of prototypes, I think that is uh, a parallelity I, I could mention. And so the ripple effect behind it. And of course, always thinking about functions. So what are the, you know, his proposals about park systems were not because of beauty or leisure or recreation. It was always a, a, a certain function, whether this was retention of water. And that was the driver for all the investment. I, I feel very familiar with that kind of concept and approach. He spoke a great deal about the concept of transposition and of transformation. What do those principles mean to you two? I think, you know, as landscape architects, we are agents for change, or we can be agents. You need a long breath, you know, a strong breath. 
If you want to change and transform landscapes because you won't harvest, you know, immediate success normally, the success will grow or will part of this process of evolution. And at the beginning, you don't really know if it will happen as it was thought through at the very beginning. I think that's also what he's doing in his projects. Again, it's never finished. So you stay in constant touch and contact you know, with your projects because you don't want to control, but you have to maybe adjust. You have to correct little things. Just think, think about these tree plantings. It's very uncommon the way he uses trees and plant trees. It's some, something in between forestry and nursery. It requires an input and knowledge all the time. And I think it's the same. And that's how I would assess our projects as well, because trees are very important. So sometimes you want to come back in 100 years. I won't be alive anymore, but sometimes somebody will take a picture and that picture will tell you if your project is successful. Anticipating this conversation today, what kinds of things were you thinking that I should know about your practices and your principles, not just to talk about Devine, but to talk about the way that you approach landscape architecture? I would say our practice would be, I, I assume, would be completely different if we wouldn't be here in Winnipeg or Canada. Back in Germany, you know, there are many landscape architects. There's a strong culture of running public design competitions, which is great. We love and I miss those competitions because, you know, you always have, have to expose yourself. You have to stay innovative. You have to be up to date. Otherwise, you won't be successful. And on the other hand, I would say for a lot of those projects, there's always some money available. For instance, if you team up for a small project like a school in the outdoor places, a space, there's a certain percentage. You know, for the outdoors, is part of the budget for the total project. Whereas here, the building is done and then somebody th might think about the outdoor space then you might have an idea, then they start the fundraising process. And after maybe two, three, four years, you start to do, you can start to do something out there. So that means here we start normally with less budget or even no budget. So we try to identify other opportunities, asking for donations, material donations, and so on. So that means I think we have a little bit of practice or the ability to see the worth of materials where others just see waste. And then you take those materials, sometimes produced by the city and thrown out, you know, every day, and you see something there which is worthless for others, but it's a great value for us. So, and I think that's a different kind of a building culture we all can learn from and we can even provide lessons, you know, for landscape architects somewhere else. You know, it's about repairing, recycling and upgrading. Or in other words, finding beauty in spontaneity and improvisation. One of the interesting things that I saw in, in your body of work when I was doing the research is what you did with 
abandoned sandbags that were used to protect us from flooding. <laughs> Tell us about that. I think that's a good, good sample. That's one of these prototypes. Normally we think, okay, sand, that's something you can find in a beach or in a quarry. What's about the value of sand? Meanwhile, we know the world, global-wide, we are running out of sand. And for a lot of projects, you know, even especially in the desert, you know, uh, where they have a lot of money available for projects, especially oil money, but they can't use the sand right in front of their doors because, you know, it's too refined. The wind, you know, did his job and that's not good for construction. So meanwhile, especially in impoverished countries, in order to make money, you know, they dig up whole beaches and sell the sand to Dubai and all those countries. Whereas, you know, back where they took the sand from, it creates huge problems, erosions, and these landscapes start to, to, de to decay. So again, it's about the worth of the worthless. And here we have a great opportunity, you know, these sands and gravels and the limestone layer, these are sediments and deposits delivered by the Ordovician seas 450 million years ago, and they are right in front of our doors. And I think that's a great deal we can make with the landscape. We can harvest uh, some of these very valuable resources, the material we built our city with, just 30 kilometers outside from our city. That's so we have great access to those resources. So we have to spend less energy in order to get these resources. And that's a great deal. And these sandbags, you know, that was a kind of a lesson. If it's used and not contaminated, don't throw them on the landfill. <laughs> there's another purpose, you know, there's a second use. And that was a little, yeah, maybe an educational opportunity as well to share with clients and also right now with students. And the lesson I learned was that the sandbags, uh, over the summer, they were broken. You know, the sun were, um, you were saying sunburns. <laughs> and so the beauty in it, this was amazing to see this uh, decay so cool. uh, of it. And I think that was my big, biggest lesson with this instant garden. But what did you do with the sandbags? I mean, I saw photos that displayed what you were doing and I thought stuff will grow in those sandbags. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a bit, you know, a little bit, that was the surface. Mm -hmm. So also when Anna was referring to some Sometimes we are very pragmatic. Normally, when you have a garden, the problem are the weeds. And if you don't take, you know, if you don't weed uh, frequently, or if you don't apply some pesticides, the neighbors will call the city and you can get a ticket if you don't maintain your lawn to cover the topsoil with the, or the soil with the sandbags. It's almost like a mulch layer. There were no weeds. But at the same time, in between, there's sufficient space that the rain and the runoff can go through. And then in between, we manipulated some of the bags, you know, they were filled with really rich manure in order to grow those vegetables. But then they had access to the soil underneath of the sandbags and to the water there. And on top, you know, these were creepers and they were creeping around and they were occupying the space. And after the decay, after the sandbag got sunburned, normally, Sand is a great material in order to improve existing soil, you know, to add a loose component to bring more oxygen into the soil. 
But I have to say, if you mix the sand with clay, and that's, you know, our learning experience here, it can turn into concrete. You can make it even worse. No, it's also for us, it's a learning process. <laughs> what I would like to add to the points, what you should know, because of the no budget, often uh, we work with volunteers. The methods and techniques we are uh, applying must be very basic so that volunteers can participate in the a project. So you would, you in our, especially the Winnipeg projects here, they do not include uh, complicated details of, let's say, like a water feature, you know, where you have a lot of technology necessary and, uh, or somebody who is an expert to build this up. It must be simple elements and so that this works and that has to do with the money. And also that, that we are not doing this for business reasons. I think that's the biggest difference to local firms. We don't have to make money out of because of our university position. Yeah, so that's a kind of a very privileged situation. It allows us uh, to enter areas where others have to notice the no-go zone, there's no money. It sounds, though, as if you're trying to significantly change the way that we as citizens here in Winnipeg and Manitoba, think about landscape architecture and its possible sources and impacts. You're being innovative in a way that would appear that we don't appreciate. What, what's wrong with us? Why don't we get it? <laughs> no, so we have to be, now we have to be a little bit careful and also fair, you know, to the firms. They have to make money. And so they have to work according to a process. So again, as Anna mentioned, we teach, we get our salaries by tax money, so we can take this, you know, to feed a little bit back into the public, you know, into the community, so we can offer our time for free. We were never really good in turning our ideas into money, even back in Germany, you know, we always became friends with our clients and you don't want to, uh, you know, write invoices for your friends. So it's a perfect situation, so we can use our small projects as, opportun as opportunities for testing ideas and techniques and materials. So, which means if you don't ask for money, you can ask for risk. And we had moments in these projects, you know, where I told them, let's say talking with the Winnipeg School Division or on campus when they want to apply finally, you know, always great ideas. And then I learned, you know, these Winnipeg buts, great idea, go ahead. But at the very beginning, I was always listening because I thought, okay, it's a new context. I'm not familiar. And I'm willing to listen. But then some, I started to think, no, it's not a real but. It's not a but in a way that, you, that we won't be able to do it. I think they want to avoid it. They don't want to go beyond their routines. And then we had moments when they told us, oh, all our red flags, that's not according our standards and whatever. Then I mentioned, okay, we don't have to do this, you know, so we can step back, so we can build something according to your standards. But if you agree, you know, to work with us, then our agreement or contract is based on openness and the willingness to take risks. And that's our, our requirement. And, you know, it's coming from a different education system, different culture of uh, positionals and landscape architecture in from Europe, we, we were used to it and we're bring, come, arriving here and seeing this is not the same case. 
So it was easy for us to say, oh, that's where we, that's also a niche for us. Something where we can explore and see what we were used to bring it here and to adapt it to what's necessary here. So it's, it's became an interesting melange. Didn't you do a big project in Shanghai for the expo there? A very big project that is still living there. What was that? That was the reason why we are in Canada or why we almost didn't move to Canada, both. Because I'm pretty sure when I got invited for an interview, you know, when I submitted my portfolio, when there was a job position out there, I'm pretty sure that they were impressed by that project. At that time, it was not realized. You know, it, it, I just submitted the drawings. And when I came back after my interview, one week in Canada, so it was clear that we'll get a contract and we'll have a chance to make some money. And then I told them here, because right two days after my interview, I got an email and they offered me the job. And then I was actually shocked. Normally, you know, it's, a, it's something where you should be happy about, but I was actually shocked because I thought, now I'm in a dilemma. We put so much time in that project because it was an international competition and we were working in a team with engineers and architects. But suddenly... We want, they wanted to pay us and they wanted us to realize that project. And I thought, oh, I put my whole heart and soul in that project. I have to do this. And then I got asked here, how much time do you need? And then I told them, oh, I think at least one year. And then I thought, that's a decision made. Okay, we'll work on that project. But then they said or responded, okay, we'll wait for you. Then, oh gosh, I thought you make a decision right now. But you know, it was built on mutual trust right now. So and it was very successful economically. It was maybe the best project so far because there was so much time pressure. We had to produce everything within half a year. You know, they paid us for that. And after that half year, we moved to Canada and then they built it in China. And it's fantastic because also here trees and that's maybe also a connection to Michel Desvigny's work. I think we planted around 20,000 new trees that was, a, I think, in total for that project was a 300 million Canadian dollar project. With the architecture, you know, there were a lot of building, integral part of the landscape, integrated in the landscape, conservatories and whatever. And it was good to have a budget. But what we learned here in Winnipeg, or what we try to apply here, you know, both the, the opposite. You can do really good work without heavy budgets as well, you know, with low budgets. And I have the feeling sometimes if project here has a bit too much money, they start to become too over-manicured. You know, the application of all these materials, heavy concrete, cotton, steel, flashing lights, rather than, you know, to think a little bit more into the future, you know, working with the living materials. Typically, there is no money around for a project in Winnipeg. And if there is one, people become very proud. And then it's like a status symbol almost. See, this is what I have. <laughs> and, yeah, and so it becomes too showy. We could be involved ways earlier on. You know, it's not about decorating the green salad around the beefsteak. It's not about landscape and urbanism. Landscape is urbanism. But it's also an obligation. If we, as landscape architects, don't provide you know, the knowledge and maybe the possible solutions in a way that you know, Michel Desvigne was able to display it, 
uh, I think the biggest question Winnipeg has in regards to landscape architecture is the urban tree forest. Since I'm here, I admire the um, 8 million trees we have. I admire that we still have elm trees. You know, the city is doing the best of a small budget, but I think we should do much more <laughs> in protecting it, in, in, in replanting it. There is no bylaw in protecting private trees, and that's a big shame. Anna Thurmayer and Dietmar Straub are both professors of landscape architecture at the University of Manitoba. Michel Devin is the principal of Michel Devin Paysagiste of Paris. Monsieur Devin spoke to 145 of us on Zoom in October of 2020. Thanks for joining us on Prairie Design Lab. We come to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Thanks, as always, to the vital help of Professors Jason Chan and Jason Shields from the Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. See you next week. <laughs>